0: Well, I'm going to ask you to stand again, and let's read our scripture together this morning. Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you're new among us today, we're on a journey through the New Testament book, the Acts of the Apostles. Our title is Turning the World Upside Down. Um, that's from chapter 17. Um, and, uh, today we're in chapter 13. In this chapter, we're, we've arrived at at something of an important mile marker. Verse 4 marks the beginning of Luke's recounting of the missionary journeys of the apostle Paul. But it's important that we frame this in the right way because Luke doesn't simply chronicle the the geographical movements of Paul and his various teams, as interesting as that might be to uh, some of the history geeks among us. But but what Luke is demonstrating and and what we need to see and understand in this chapter and in all the chapters that follow is the power of the Holy Spirit uh, and the impact of the gospel as it advances beyond the borders of Israel and throughout the Mediterranean region. So if you're not familiar with the book of of the Acts of the Apostles, it's really about the beginnings of the church and and the expansion of the missionary um, movement of the church over about the first 35 to 40 years. Our title this morning is Confronting Deception. And in verse 4 of chapter 13, we find Barnabas and Saul sailing to Cyprus. They're, and they're sailing, as it were, on the wind of the Spirit. Check out verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Uh, you might say, uh, based on last week's study, well, I, I thought they were sent out by the church in Antioch. You'd be right about that. In obedience to the clear directive of the Holy Spirit, the church in Antioch set Barnabas and Saul uh, apart for the work to which he had called them, and then, uh, they uh, then released them to his purposes. It, it's as if the Holy Spirit moved and the church seconded the motion. And, and so it should always be. Uh, You know, there are some who go out entirely on their own, claiming to have been called by the Spirit to be a a pastor or a missionary without any church whatsoever agreeing and seconding the motion. Uh, There are others who are sent out by a local church, but quite apart from any directive or impulse of the Holy Spirit. Um, Both of those are losing propositions in most cases, but when the Holy Spirit gives the directive... And the church says amen, then you, then you got something going. That, that's a win-win proposition. These two men, along with John Mark, set sail from Seleucia, the official seaport of the city of Antioch, downriver from Antioch at the, at the Mediterranean Sea, en route to Cyprus, over 150 miles directly out into the Mediterranean Sea. Well, why Cyprus? We're not told why they first went to Cyprus, so we're left to speculate. They, they may have had a direct word from the Holy Spirit, or they may simply have agreed together that it would be a good place to begin this new phase of their partnership. We learned back in chapter 4, you might recall, that the Barnabas was a native of Cyprus. Uh, so he would have known the local culture, the people, the cities, The geography of the island. Having arrived in Cyprus, then they began setting strategy at Salamis. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. Uh, Those of you who didn't have breakfast or are looking forward to arriving at Salamis at lunch are probably disappointed to know that it's pronounced Salamis. I'm sorry. Uh, You may have been fantasizing about a nice cold cut sandwich or a loaded pizza and. And if you weren't, well, then you are now, so sorry. Well, what do I mean by setting strategy? Uh, there are two dynamics present here in verse 5 that, that represent what I'm just going to call two pillars in the Apostle Paul's strategy going forward. And you you can see them very clearly in, in all the chapters that follow. The first pillar is that his strategy was city-based. Would you say that with me? City-based from that perspective, it's it's not surprising that the two places that are highlighted in today's very brief passages are both cities, Salamis, which was the chief city of Cyprus at the eastern end of the island, and Paphos, the harbor city on the western end. Uh, Paphos was a, the territorial seat of power. Um, like Olympia, it's where the governor's palace. Does Jay Inslee have a palace? I don't know. But in this case, it was where the governor's palace was located. So so what was the first pillar of Paul's strategy? City-based, thank you. The second observable pillar of his strategy can be described as synagogues first. Do you say that out loud with me? Synagogues first. So the first thing that Luke tells us uh, Barnabas and Saul did when they arrived at Salamis was that they proclaimed the word of God. In the synagogues of the Jews, don't don't miss that Luke tells us here that that Barnabas' young cousin John Mark had come along to assist them in their work. Uh, I've begun to realize that as Luke introduces significant people, he kind of slips them their names in early. He kind of drops their names here and there. Um, John Mark's presence and uh, his impact is going to be um, significant a little later in Acts. But these were Jewish men. Let's remind ourselves of that. These were Jewish men. Their their goal was to proclaim the gospel of Messiah Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, to any and all who would listen. And so in the synagogues, they were able to leverage the common ground that they shared with their fellow Jews to demonstrate from the law and from the prophets that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Reading on in the book of Acts we can see that in each new city he visited, Paul always began his evangelistic efforts in the synagogues. Uh, he and Barnabas set this strategy in motion first here in Salamis, but then we see it repeated in Perga, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus. So what was the first pillar? It was city-based, and the second pillar was synagogues first. And why was that? In his letter to the church in Rome, he wrote at chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is that the power of God for, uh, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. You see, even though God had called Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, his heart broke for the people of Israel, the Jews, who, like Paul himself, had not only failed to recognize their Messiah when he came, uh, but had rejected him outright. They even demanded his death on a Roman cross. And later at chapter 9 of that same letter to the Roman believers, he he shared his heart. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So this is one of the powerful reminders to me, I think it should be to all of us, that that anti-Semitism is never, ever appropriate in the heart and mind of a biblical Christian. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the spirit of Antichrist is also the spirit of anti-Semitism. And so great was Saul's par- sorrow, so great was his anguish over the lost condition of his fellow Jews that he would have been willing to forfeit his own eternal salvation if it were possible for the sake of theirs. Our hearts ought to break for them like Paul's did. The fact is, the most Jews in Israel today, and many, many Jews all around the world are atheists, and yet even today in Israel, those in a position to know, people like former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will tell you that the modern state of Israel has no better friends and supporters in the world than evangelical Christians, and not because we always agree with their politics, or their policies, or their tactics— but simply because we evangelicals, because we honor God's word and we study God's word, uh, understand and affirm from God's word that God isn't done with the Jews just yet. Uh, that in the last days there will be a great turning and, and an ingathering of massive numbers of Jews who will at last recognize Jesus as their Messiah, repent of their sin, and turn to him in personal faith. Reading verses 4 to 12, you don't get the sense that a whole lot happened on Cyprus in terms of the advance of the gospel. And to our knowledge, Paul never returned there. Uh, We know that he sailed by Cyprus, sailed around Cyprus. Uh, Maybe he waved as he passed from the boat. But as we saw last week, the, the measure of success in the kingdom of God is not fruitfulness first, but faithfulness first. Faithfulness. Fruitfulness comes next. Each of us as followers of Jesus is called to do what he calls us to do, what he shows us we are to do, and then to trust God to do what only he can do, to bring the increase. Paul expressed this truth in 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7 to when he described his ministry and, and the ministry of another teacher named Apollos in gardening terminology. At verse uh, Chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, verses 6 and 7, I planted, he says, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. And so he says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Barnabas and Saul were faithful to plant the seed of the gospel in Salamis and in and presumably in all of the villages in between. And like them, you and I are called to do what we are called to do, make the gospel known to people in the places we inhabit, simply to leave the outcomes to God, who alone is able to cause the seed of the gospel to germinate and to take root in the hearts and lives of those he's calling to himself having set that city-based synagogue's first strategy at Salamis. And what follows, we find Barnabas and Saul pivoting then at Paphos. What do I mean by pivoting? Well, you may recall from chapter 9 that that when Saul, who had been terrorizing and persecuting the church, uh, had his vision of the risen and glorified Christ there on that road to Damascus, um, came to the realization that in, in persecuting the church, he had actually been persecuting Jesus himself. And he was blinded for a time. And God spoke in a vision to a believer named Ananias uh, in the city of Joppa, told him to go and lay his hands on Saul uh, in the house of Judas in, um, on the street called Straight so that he could regain his sight. And knowing who Saul was, and knowing all that Saul had done, Ananias hesitated and he, he 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 balked at the at the call. Lord, you know who this guy is. You know what he's done, do you know how dangerous he is. Isn't isn't it interesting when we try to instruct God and tell him what he doesn't know? But God said to Ananias, Go. For he's a chosen instrument of mine to, to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And by the way, it so struck me this week as I was preparing this message and, and, and kind of thinking these thoughts that, that here are all these kids, right? Over a hundred kids. Some of them just teeny tiny with little tiny bodies and little tiny voices. And we don't know what God's plan and purpose for them is. We, we don't know who's sitting here. We don't know who's in our classrooms at the back. We, we don't know God's plans and purposes for their lives. And so we go. We do what we do. We, we, we teach the gospel to them. We teach them the word of God. Because God has plans and purposes for them that are far beyond our imaginings. And... And so we do what we do, and we trust God for the outcome. In other words, going forward, then, Saul's first mission would be to take the gospel of the crucified, risen, ascended, glorified Jesus Christ to the Gentile world. And here in chapter 13, we find that historical moment where Saul kind of begins his pivot away from a, a primary focus on mission to the Jews to fulfill his new calling to take the good news to the Gentiles also. There are a couple of preliminary indicators of that pivot toward the Gentiles that appear here in this text. One is, and in, incidentally, we'll see that we'll, we'll see it outright in the very next uh, section of this chapter. But uh, one of those preliminary indicators here in this passage is at verse nine, where we read uh, for the first time that Saul was also known as Paul. And from this point forward in Luke's gospel and throughout the remainder of the New Testament, we'll know him by that name. Well, why did he begin using the name Paul rather than Saul? Uh, Notice, first of all, that that this is not a new name for him. I remember being taught when I was just a child that, that Paul took a new name because when he was saved, God gave him a new name. But that actually wasn't true at all. Uh, verse 9 says he was also already called Paul. In other words, he was, um, Paul's parents were, were Roman citizens. It was the practice of Romans to give their children three names. Each was given, uh, what, um, a first name that was personal to them. And then they had what we today would call a last name or a surname, which was personal to the family or the clan to which they belonged. But they were also given a third name. And it's my understanding that the, the third name functioned like a nickname. Uh, it was often, though not always, passed down from father to son. And we might call that third name their street name, their everyday name, uh, the name everyone knew them by. I had a, a friend when I was a kid whose name was Skip, and his dad's name was Skip. And and then when he had a son, his he named his son Skip. And then the grandson's name was Skip. Skip, 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 Skip. But their real name was Charles. But it was passed down from father to son. Additionally, Jews who happened to hold Roman citizenship would also give their children both Hebrew names and Roman names. And because their lives spanned two different cultures. Saul's a Hebrew name, or Shaul. Hebrew name, Paul or Paulus is a Roman name. So in Jewish culture, he, he would have grown up being known as Shaul or Saul. And when he was interacting in Roman culture, he would have been known as Paul. Incidentally, that name Saul means prayed for. It means wanted, uh, desired. A great beginning of uh, self-esteem for your kid to name him. We wanted you. We're happy you're here. The name Paul means small. doesn't seem like a very good exchange, does it? It may have been an indicator that he was one of the younger members of his family or that he was small in stature, but later Paul would describe himself with great humility as the least of all the saints. But the greater significance for this pivotal moment in the early mission of the gospel, I think, is that Saul, who had been called to take the gospel to the Gentiles, began using his Roman name in order to accommodate himself and to Gentiles to be able to appeal to them, um, to remove cultural barriers. Hudson Taylor, the famous 19th century British missionary to to China, was once sorely criticized by his mission board back in England for uh, shaving the front and the sides of his head and wearing only that distinctly Chinese Q, which is that that long braid that hangs down the back. Uh, He also exchanged his English clothing for Chinese, but his entire goal was simply to adapt himself, to accommodate himself to Chinese culture, to a Chinese audience, and so I think it was with Saul as he began to use his Roman name Paul. Second indicator of this pivot toward the Gentiles has to do with the evangelization of Sergius Paulus who happened to be the Roman proconsul or the provincial governor on the island of Cyprus. He was the highest ranking Roman representative on the island. And as we'll see in just a moment, um, he became a believer in Jesus through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And that's entirely significant all by itself for reasons personal to him, isn't it? But but in terms of the, the history of the advance of the gospel that, that Luke is laying out for us, Sergius Paulus occupies the unique position uh, as the first recorded, entirely Gentile Christian convert, meaning that he, he most likely had no prior exposure to Judaism uh, or to the Old Testament scriptures. And, and uh, you remember, we... We learned about Cornelius, the Roman centurion, but it says there that he was a God-fearer. In other words, he was a Gentile who was mostly Jewish but hadn't taken the full plunge. Uh, But here's a guy who had no background whatsoever in Judaism, who had no prior exposure to the Scriptures, and he trusts in Christ. In verses 6 to 12 then, we find Paul and Barnabas and Sergius Paulus dealing with deception. Beginning of verse six, uh, verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now there are a few things important to point out right away about this magician that they encountered at Paphos. The first is that to combine the two words Jewish and magician um, creates a startling oxymoron. Now, because in several places throughout the Old Testament, God's people are strongly warned and commanded not to have anything to do with magic or sorcery. Secondly, it should strike us as equally ironic and problematic to speak of a Jewish false prophet, because in Old Testament Israel, those who claimed to be prophets, but who were subsequently proven false, were subject to death by stoning. And third, his name was Bar-Jesus. That's not like they scared the Bar-Jesus out of me. That's that's, that's a different thing. But some look at this and they're led to think that, that he was somehow posing as a disciple of Jesus Christ or as a um, a blood relative of, of the Lord. But the name Jesus, you may know, or uh, in Hebrew, Yeshua or Joshua was in fact a very common name in those days. Um, bar simply means son of. So we learn that his father's name was Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus in Greek. So his first name is actually more problematic to the moment because Elimus or Elumus meant wise one or enlightened one, insightful one. So what we have is a a false prophet, a sorcerer or magician, passing himself off as wise and enlightened, seemingly serving as an advisor to the Roman governor, Sergius Paulus. And we might say that Elimus had Sergius Paulus under his spell. Not a good place to be. By the way, if you want to know where political figures uh, will go, what they will do, the kind of decisions they'll make, the things they'll vote for, uh, don't bother to read the propaganda on their website. That's carefully written. Uh, But take a close look at the character and the ideologies, the philosophies, the the bents of those who are advising them, their chief influencers, the people they draw around them. And that will tell you more of what you need to know about the quality and direction of their leadership than anything else. In verses 7 to 9, we learn that Sergius Paulus was a, a man of intelligence. He he had an active and inquisitive mind. He was the very definition of inquiring minds want to know. He He had apparently heard something about Saul and Barnabas, and what they were teaching, and so he summoned them and wanting to hear the word of God. And here's where Elimus just goes apoplectic. He's doing everything in his power uh, to keep um, the proconsul away from the influence of Saul and Barnabas. Uh, away from the influence of the gospel, and i I think Elimamas simply knew that uh, if the governor became a a genuine follower of Jesus, if Saul and Barnabas were to kind of win this little contest that was about to happen, uh, the power and influence that he had over Sergius Paulus would evaporate at that very moment so so he had to spring into action and and attempt to to turn the governor away from the truth. Jesus once taught a parable that we have come to know as the parable of the sower. Sometimes it's referred to as the parable of the soils. And in the parable, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And in this parable, there's just one kind of seed, but it falls on four different kinds of soil with four very different results. And I'm not going to read the entire passage, but in the first vignette in the parable, Jesus said, a sower went out to sow And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And Later, as he interpreted the parable to his disciples, uh, he said, hear then the parable of the sower. And he speaks to this vignette of the the seed falling on the path, the the birds coming and and eating the seed and taking it away. He says, "When when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So in Jesus' parable, the seed is the gospel. The soil, in this case, is a person who hears it but does not yet understand it, a person like Sergius Paulus. The little birds who come and eat the seed represent Satan, the evil one, who comes and snatches away the seed of the gospel, that has been sown in that person's heart so that it has no opportunity to take root and grow. In Paphos that day, the evil one was personified in Elimus the magician, the false prophet, the deceiver. And you know, as I was preparing this message this week, I was, I was up in my office, but, a, but this place was full of screaming children. And as I was thinking about this parable, I was reminded of those kids who who may this week have heard the simple message of the gospel for the very first time. Um, That there's a God who loves them, a Savior who died for them, uh, who has a wonderful plan and purpose for their lives. And it occurred to me that some of them may have gone home each evening to a home where the gospel is neither known nor understood nor embraced, where faith in Christ is not encouraged and in fact may have been discouraged. And it just led me to pray, and I hope that you'll be praying this week for those children. This is a critical moment this week, that, that the Spirit of God will so restrain the evil one in their lives that, that, that he'll have no opportunity to steal away what the Spirit has begun in their lives this past week. In what follows, beginning of verse 9, Paul delivers really a, a harsh rebuke to Elimus. And it's important to know that Paul, before delivering this rebuke, first received a fresh filling with the Holy Spirit. So he wasn't out of control. Uh, he wasn't spewing mere personal opinion. Instead, he manifested a prophetic gift and as he communicated a word of judgment from God that was true, that was direct, that was personal, and that was very specific. Let's examine verses 9 and 10 and the anatomy of this rebuke that Paul leveled. It says, But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Let's break that down just a little bit. First thing Luke tells us is that Paul looked intently at Elimas. And and Luke used that same expression here that he used of Peter fixing his gaze on the lame man outside the beautiful gate of the temple. That was somewhere back in chapter 3 or 4. By the Spirit, what Luke is saying, is, I think, is that by the Spirit, Paul not only looked at the situation, didn't just look at Elimus, but he rather he looked into the situation. He looked into the, the person of Elimus. He perceived what was truly taking place, and he saw Elimus for precisely who he was. Paul also understood clearly who it was that was operating behind the scenes, and he, he addresses Elimus, you son of the devil. Now, I think you know you've got to be careful when you're addressing someone with you son of, don't you? Because the, the, the second half of that sentence might just get you into trouble. But, but these weren't just idle, emotional words. During the days of his earthly ministry, Jesus himself confronted some false disciples saying, you are, are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies remember there's another translation that says uh, that puts it this way when he lies he speaks his own native tongue because he is a liar the father of lies what paul said to elimas that day directly reflected the words of jesus and by calling Elias a son of the devil, he was speaking to his character, to his deceptive influence in the life of Sergius Paulus. And perhaps his memory of, of this experience contributed in part to what he would later write to the church in Ephesus, where he wrote, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul would have said, my struggle is not with you, Elimus. My struggle is the person who is animating you and what you're doing. So when you and I naively fail to acknowledge that there's an invisible enemy who's active uh, behind the scenes in the world, in the church, in our families, in our marriages, in our personal lives, we make a profound mistake. And we might ask ourselves whether by that denial we make ourselves complicit in the deception. We fail to acknowledge it. We fail to confront it. Next, Paul recognized Elimus hostility says you enemy of all righteousness and what is an enemy after all if if someone has a negative opinion of of us uh, we might not call them an enemy per se but on the other hand if they express a deep seated hatred toward us uh, combine that with an active agenda to do us harm uh, they kind of move over into that category don't they uh, they move into the category of an enemy an adversary, and in this case, by calling Elimus an enemy of all righteousness, he's labeling him as an enemy of God himself, the righteous, an enemy of the righteous one. Fourth, Paul clearly assessed and named the character the deceiver. He says, you are full of all deceit and villainy. And notice that adjective all. He's saying to Elimus, this characterizes you through and through. Deceit we kind of understand, but what is Villainy. Most of our images of villains are caricatures, aren't they? In this case, it speaks to extreme, vicious, outrageous wickedness. Maybe thinly veiled. but It's always there, simmering and bubbling below the surface. And finally, Paul identifies Elimus' tactics, the manner of his deception, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. What's he describing here? The verb, verb translated making crooked describes somebody taking something and twisting it and, and distorting it until it's so, mis- so misshapen as to be unrecognizable. Nancy Davis did that this week. She made some cookies for the kids and she started out with a, a gingerbread man cookie cutter and then she, she distorted those so they looked like paint splats. So in this case, Paul's characterizing Elymas' activity as as twisting, as perverting, as distorting the truth of the gospel of the kingdom, the the sovereign rule of God. You might say his perversion was an attempt to prevent Sergius Paulus' conversion. Having delivered that rebuke by the filling of the Holy Spirit, Paul, by that same spirit, utters what I'll just call a temporary curse on Elimus. Verse 11, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Paul said it, and it happened. So here in Elimus was a Jew who himself at some point had become thoroughly deceived and who in turn became a deceiver. His spiritual blindness became physical blindness for a time. Elimus' experience symbolizes the present condition of the Jewish people at large. And that's why, you know, when I say pivoting at Paphos, the turning away from the ministry to the Jews, this moment is significant in that pivot. In Romans 11, Paul's answering the question, If the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah, has God in turn rejected them? If the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah, has God in turn rejected them? And his answer is, absolutely not. By no means. But then in explaining the present reality, at verse 25 he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved. Earlier in that same chapter, he described that hardening that's come upon Israel as a spirit of stupor or slumber, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And just as Elimus' physical blindness was temporary, so Israel's spiritual blindness, the spiritual blindness that they are presently experiencing today in the 21st century, still today, 22,000 years later, it's a temporary blindness. Paul says it's a partial hardening. It's a temporary Blindness, there is a day coming that Paul describes as the day when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and that is when all or virtually all of the Gentiles who are going to believe in Jesus have believed, and God knows who they are. That day will mark the beginning, the Bible tells us, of a great revival among the Jews worldwide who who will in turn... uh, who will turn in faith to the Lord Jesus as their Messiah? And I believe the day that uh, that will mark that great turning, the, the the beginning of that revival, that the beginning of that return of, of Israel, when the blindness is taken away, will be the day of the rapture of the church that Paul described in First Thessalonians four, when all who have believed in Jesus, living and dead, will be caught up together um, to meet the Lord. In the air. Now don't miss the reaction of Sergius Paulus to all he had seen and heard. Acts 13, 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now understand what what's being said here. The proconsul believed when he saw what had happened. That is, to, to Elimus, what happened to Elimus as, as the direct result of Paul's words. But that was not the foundation of his belief. Notice what he says here. The verse goes on to give the real foundation of, of his faith. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas had faithfully taught the word of God to this intelligent man, this inquiring man. And that became the foundation of his belief. But it seemed that his heart was opened to receive the message as he witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit through the miracle that Paul performed. What happened to Elimus may seem to us rather harsh. But in fact, it doesn't come close to the harshness of Jesus' warning in Matthew 18.6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Blindness or drowning, take your pick. See, Elimus was was attempting to deceive Sergius Paulus in order to prevent him from receiving the message of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas regarded the proconsul's salvation as of such importance that the hindrance had to be confronted and it had to be neutralized. It had to be removed. And there are times when, when we too may need to speak and act strongly against those who try to keep others from the truth. Imagine with me a father who sees someone peddling fentanyl to his young son. You think he'll take decisive action? Or imagine a mother who sees her daughter being groomed by a sexual predator. Do you think she might be motivated to act with some level of urgency? Imagine a hotel manager who in the middle of the night discovers fire in one of the rooms and realizes that the fire alarm system is malfunctioning. Do you think that they would just passively walk away? Or would they call 911 and do everything in their power to alert every guest of the hotel? And maybe you've seen the news coverage of the hearings on the failure of the Uvalde Police Department to act courageously and decisively as 19 students and two teachers were being shot and killed inside Robb Elementary School on May 24th of this year. In total, 376 law enforcement officers, a force larger, an article that I read said a a force larger than the garrison that defended the Alamo descended upon the school in a chaotic uncoordinated scene that lasted for more than an hour. Now, I don't personally know all the details and and you know all the all the this and that's. So I'm not going to pronounce judgment on a- anyone, but one news report I read said that the group was devoid of clear leadership, basic communications and sufficient urgency, sufficient urgency to take down the gunman and a full hour had passed before the lone gunman was taken out. And as I thought about this the other day, it, it struck me that this might just kind of be a, a parable of, of a church in any given community when the church fails to aggressively proclaim the gospel, fails to, to act to rescue people who are dying their, in their sins and, and entering eternity without knowing Christ lacking sufficient urgency. Imagine a Christian, an individual, seeing someone traveling at mock speed down the highway to hell, taking no action to, to redirect the trajectory of their lives. Shouldn't that elicit from us a desperate sense of urgency? Wouldn't we regard with moral outrage the one who could have done something and didn't? And here's a deeper question. Are we those people? Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote that we as believers should save others by snatching them out of the fire, that we should contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And because you and I are are influenced to some degrees by the relativism and the pluralism that pervades the ways our culture has come to think. We, we can be tempted to think of evangelism, can't we, as, as merely exchanging and comparing more or less equal religious views with, with people who hold to other faiths or other ideologies. So there's no urgency. There's no sense of crisis. You have your truth. I have mine. It's all good. But the urgent need, and I just want to say the urgent need of our time, and I'll apply this to myself, is for Christians to recover and to reclaim the truth that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. And to proclaim that truth and courageously and sacrificially stand in the way of those who would distort and pervert it. I couldn't help thinking this past week about these beautiful kids who were here on our campus for just, I don't know, fifteen to twenty hours. And the world they're growing up in. And I, I couldn't help thinking about the diabolical deceptions that are being foisted on them, will be foisted on them in the schools and cyberspace and the media and I I couldn't help praying that the truth of God's word and the power of the the gospel would penetrate and permeate their hearts and minds. In these last days that we have here on earth, what better thing could we be doing than making the gospel of Jesus Christ known to as many as will listen? In the power of the Holy Spirit, and confronting with the truth of God's words the falsehoods that are being pressed into our culture from seemingly every side. See, coming back to the beginning of the message, what you and I are called to do is simply to speak the truth. Trust God for the rest. We don't have to stand in the place of God. We don't have to stand in the place of the Holy Spirit. We're not called to be judge and jury. We're not even called to be the persuaders simply called to speak the truth in a timely way, the right moments with the right people. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that uh, this study through the Acts of the Apostles is revealing. Lord, we want to be missionary people. We want to be on mission for you right here in, in Olympia, in a place where Very few really believe in you. So we know we're in the minority, just as Paul and Barnabas suddenly felt that they were in the minority as they moved into a Gentile world, and yet the message that they had is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. May we be found faithful in proclaiming that word, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.